Exterior Hoth, a little spy robot thingy, zips through the atmosphere and crashes into the snowy planet below. That's when Chewbacca shows up and blasts it away with his crossbow laser. He shakes his fury fist in the sky in triumph. Chewbacca, rawr. It's furry. Furry fist. I need a spell check. Hello everyone, Matt here and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be looking at episode 513 entitled Some Like It Hoth. This is the 99th episode of the series and there are 22 to go. First, a quick reminder that if you would like to share feedback, you can do so a bunch of different ways. You can say hello to me on Twitter, where I am Looking Back Lost. You can send an email to lookingbackatlost at gmail.com. You can leave a comment on the webpage, lookingbackatlost.podbean.com. Or last but not least, you can leave a message on the listener line, 732-707-1815. Now, ordinarily, I would say that that is the, uh, the barely used, the hardly used, the, uh, the ignored option. However, I'm uh, thrilled to share with you uh, a, uh, a call from a listener. So without further ado, here we go. Hey, Matt, and hello to any of my fellow Losties who may end up hearing this as well. This is Pat. Um, I had an email on this podcast a couple days ago, or a couple weeks ago, I suppose, in, uh, in podcast time. I uh, just wanted to call and let you know that I've caught up, and uh, I am now re-watching the show in sync with the podcast, so I'm a little bit sad that I'll only be getting one episode a week now. Uh, but I've come up with my own little Netflix weekly uh, broadcast schedule. So uh, Monday evenings are lost, and uh, I can go ahead and uh, ponder on that for a few days and hopefully get some more feedback to the show as we proceed through Season 6. Um, two two of the uh, themes that I just wanted to point out that uh, I had observed, I'd mentioned earlier that some of the spiritual themes in the show are really what intrigues me about the story itself. Uh, first off, and... Uh, one of these is going to reflect on an episode that Matt had uh, specifically. I, I don't think you said it was the worst episode of the show, but it was one of your least favorite. Uh, I can't remember the name exactly. Uh, I think of it as the Thelma and Louise episode, but the one where uh, Kate and uh, I believe her name is Cassidy, uh, Sawyer's old con partner, um, where uh, they had their little flashback series. Um, one of those uh, occurred to me during that episode, so I wanted to point that out as well, but uh, the, the two observances, really, the, the overarching themes are regarding love and redemption, which I think are two of the major themes of the story of the show, uh, of course. And some of the observations that I've got from the show based on that, first off, as far as uh, redemption goes, one of the things I've learned is that remorse is not repentance, and that only repentance brings redemption. I think there's several examples of this uh, through the show, most recently uh, when Ben encountered the smoke monster, he definitely experienced remorse. But I don't think that Ben ever experiences redemption because he never decides to change. He, he realizes that many of the things he's done are terrible, and he takes responsibility for some of those things. However, repentance is a turning away from those things. It is a, a willingness to break off and, and become something new. I think the example on the other end of that spectrum would be uh, Sawyer. 
when uh, when he's actually seen some of the things that he's done and gone through the experience with his uh, with finding the man who who killed his parents by proxy, um, that he did experience a form of repentance when he went through the flashback and went back with Juliet. He he changed. He became a new guy, and he was willing to do that. And that's why when the uh, the old cast members show back up, he. Uh, it, it shakes his whole world. He's he's built a new thing, and he's afraid of going back to the way things were before. I'll pause Pat's comments there for just a moment to be able to uh, to respond to them a bit. Pat, I think that you absolutely have hit the nail on the head. Uh, I love this uh, I love this phrase of yours that remorse is not repentance, and uh, I think that you get to the crux of why. Uh, why we like Ben and why we like Sawyer. We like Ben because he remains a villain despite some of his uh, his um, kind of more interesting uh, side or his, you know, the fact that he's a father and we're certainly sympathetic towards his, uh, his presentation of uh, being a father. But you're right. He absolutely is remorseful at times, but he is not repentant. And that lack of repentance, that lack of him saying, I want to change my behavior, is what Smokey Locke uh, jumps in on and, and says, you know, this is someone who I can manipulate to do the job that I can't, which is to to kill Jacob. And uh, it is that which is, um, well, I suppose, which leads Ben to repentance. And, you know, we're obviously not quite there yet in the show, but, you know, we, we all do know what will happen ahead. So really, um, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a great observation that, that Ben is remorseful, but not repentant. And it also speaks, as I said, to why we like Sawyer. Uh, he is repentant. He's somebody who's just caught up in this. He feels the urge to kill the real Mr. Sawyer. That takes him to Australia to kill the wrong man. Uh, he is horrified by that. He's horrified by the things he does. He does not like himself for doing the things that he does, but he's unable to get out of it for so long in his uh, pre-crash life. Um, but he is repentant. Uh, the fact that he keeps repeating that behavior isn't uh, isn't for a lack of uh, wanting to stop. It's just you know, sometimes the circumstances, or it's his own uh, his own sense of justice to get the real Mister Sawyer. So, um, just some some really wonderful observations there from Pat. Uh, I'll return to his comments in a moment. Uh, Pat found out the hard way that Google Voice does place a three minute limit on uh, on, on a call, and and he got cut off. Uh, kind of in between uh, his two comments, so it actually was a convenient cutting point. But uh, anyhow, let's return to uh, what listener Pat has to say. I do want to tell you about my other uh, my other observation, especially regarding that episode that you didn't seem to care for much. But it the the point I was going to make is that love is caring for another's needs above one's own, and love isn't love if the object of that love doesn't either need or want or recognize it as such. You know, it kind of brought uh, to light the way that, uh, well, that one of the instances I thought it was when Hurley in that episode went, went back to his father, and his father said that he came back for him. Well, he, he thought he was doing that out of love, but, but Hurley didn't want or need him to, and he really was doing it for his own motivations. He, he may have been willing to, to sacrifice, you know, whatever squalid existence he had in order to come back and live in the lap of luxury. Uh, but that really isn't much of a sacrifice. He, he didn't give anything up, and Hurley didn't want him or need him to come back anyway. Um, with Kate, Kate's never – Kate thinks she loves Aaron, but it's really difficult for her because in, in the first case, she, she did take him because she had to, but now 
she's using that to satisfy her own lack of self-image or, or self-importance. She doesn't know, you know, who she is or why she's important. She's always attaching herself to either a man or, in this case, to Aaron in order to give herself a sense of identity. And it, it's not really love because she's trying to meet her own needs. Ultimately, she's she's caring for Aaron's needs, but it's not because of Aaron. It's because she needs to do that in order to feel important herself. Um, anyway, I thought that episode was kind of profound as far as those observations went. Uh, really enjoying the podcast. Uh, I, you know, I've recently discovered podcasts going along with some Netflix series. It's great. I started out with Heroes doing a rewatch along with the podcast. I'm really enjoying doing that with Lost. Uh, I think maybe I'm going to head into Battlestar Galactica and rewatch that, and I'm considering maybe uh, doing something along with that myself. So keep up the great work. I really appreciate it. Having a great time, and uh, looking forward to next week's episode. Well, thank you again, Pat, for uh, for taking the time to call in. Uh, I I agree with so much that you're saying, and I think that uh, you know again you have this uh, this wonderful turn of phrase here uh, that uh, Kate is identifying herself through. Uh, through men, or at least males, you know, so we can include the baby Aaron. And um, I mean, I think that, that that it's something that the show has has had near the surface, but I think that you you really just kind of uh, distill it so well. And um, you're right; that is the flaw with with Kate's mothering, as earnest as she is with it, as well intentioned as she is as she is with it, and despite that initial you know she does take Aaron for all the right reasons to begin with but then she becomes his mother for three years for 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 selfish reasons as you say um so again Pat thank you uh thank you for calling uh yeah I will add you know it is uh it's 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 fun when you have a podcast to go along with uh with a show especially if it's on Netflix and, and it's all you can eat you know it's as fast as you can and uh, fast as you can watch it uh, for you, a uh, few Battlestar fans out there, first of all, I would if you enjoyed Lost, you almost certainly will enjoy Battlestar Galactica. If sci-fi isn't your thing, uh, you probably will still enjoy it anyway, because like Lost, it's actually looking at our post-9/11 world, uh, Battlestar Galactica, you know, profoundly so. Um, uh, I'll recommend to you, Pat, and to anybody else who who does enjoy a good podcast. That uh, the official Battlestar Galactica podcast uh, that creator Ron Moore did, uh, he did commentary tracks for most of the episodes. Uh, that was really really enjoyable. I'd watch an episode, then listen to his uh, to his commentary track. So um, that's that. And Pat, if you uh, if you do your own Battlestar Galactica podcast, let me know. I'd love to share it with everybody. Uh, you know, share the news, and I'm sure I'll be a listener myself. And just before we uh, start properly the Wikipedia summary for this episode, uh, I'll just mention that uh, certainly anybody is more than welcome to uh, to call the listener line, especially you ladies out there. Uh, but uh, joking aside, um, at the end of the podcast, we'll be hearing uh, an email from a listener. We'll give, uh, give him his uh, due credit at the end. Uh, and he actually had sent an email about this episode, 513, Sound Like It Hoff. And uh, if you want to join the conversation that way, you are absolutely more than willing. Uh, I will say that if uh, if I see that that email is uh, is about the episode that I'm podcasting, I'll make a point to not read it uh, when I'm doing my notes. That way, I'm not kind of you know stealing anything that you might come up with, and I can properly credit you. Um, 
So, uh, and I'll, I'll mention too, you know, it's usually the beginning of the week, midweek that I'm watching the episode, taking my notes. So, you know, the episodes drop Thursday night. Uh, don't, don't assume that you can send an email for this week's episode on Thursday night because you, you might miss it. And then worse comes to worse, you get mentioned in the beginning of the, of the next one. But anyhow, it's just, uh, it's so wonderful to be getting, uh, to be getting such feedback. Anyhow, here we are, 12 minutes and 25 seconds into the episode. Let's finally get into this week's uh, this week's episode of Lost for 513 Some Like It Hoth. In flashbacks, we see Miles as a child who discovers that he can hear the voices of dead people so long as their bodies are nearby. When his mother, Lara, is dying of cancer several years later, Miles questions her about his father. She tells him that his father died when Miles was still a baby, that he never cared for her or Miles. Sometime later, Miles is approached by Naomi, who, after ascertaining that Miles is not a fraud, offers him $1.6 million to go to the island on a freighter. He agrees, however, he's kidnapped by a group of people who claim that the owner of the freighter, Widmore, is on the wrong team. Miles says he will not go to the island if they can provide him with double the money. $3.2 million, the amount Miles asks for in Eggtown. Their leader, Bram, who's later a passenger on the GRL Flight 316, asks Miles the question, what lies in the shadow of the statue? Miles cannot answer, so he's kicked out of the van. Meanwhile, Miles has also been employed by a man to speak with his dead son. Since the boy's body was cremated, Miles lies to the man and says that the boy knew his father loved him. Miles returns later. Uh, to give the man his money back, saying that he lied and that the man should have told his son that he loved him before he died. In 1977, Sawyer and Kate return from bringing Ben to the others. Kate returns to the infirmary and talks with Juliet. However, Ben's father, Roger, arrives, notices that Ben is missing. Sometime later, Kate approaches Roger, who's been drinking, and tells him everything will be okay. He grows suspicious of her and demands to know what happened to Ben. He later tells Jack of his suspicions, leading Jack to tell Sawyer and Juliet. After dismissing Jack, Sawyer is confronted by Phil, who has seen the security video of Sawyer taking Ben. Sawyer knocks Phil unconscious and tells Juliet to get some rope. Miles, meanwhile, is sent by Horace to the construction site of the Swan Station to receive the dead body and bring it to Dr. Pierre Chang, Miles' father the Orchid Station. Before he can bring the body to Dr. Chang, Hurley tries to take the van containing the body in order to deliver food to the Orchid Station. Since they're both going to the same place and there are no other vans available, Miles reluctantly agrees. On the way, Hurley finds the body and realizes that Miles is able to communicate with dead people, an ability Hurley also possesses. After discussing the differences between their abilities, they arrive at the Orchid Station, where Miles transfers the body to Dr. Chang, who, after disposing of it, requires a ride to a construction site. After dropping him off, Miles discovers that Hurley is writing the screenplay for The Empire Strikes Back, in order to give it to George Lucas. Hurley compares Miles' relationship with his father to the relationship between Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader, as well as to the relationship between Hurley and his father. Hurley says the best thing he ever did was to give, forgive his father, and suggests Miles does the same. Miles goes to Dr. Chang's house and briefly observes him interacting with his three-month-old self. However, Dr. Chang is on his way out and takes the older Miles to the dock, where a submarine has brought scientists, among whom is Daniel Faraday. 
Faraday recognizes Miles and mentions that it's been a while since they've seen each other. With that, finally, without any further ado, let's get into my thoughts about the episode. It's a nice change of pace that the uh, the episode has a cold open. There's no previously on Lost. Uh, the first shot, rather, uh, oh, rather, you know, an example of. Uh, Oh, the show trying to be a bit cute. It's the microwave that reads 316. We get it, the Jira. Uh, And uh, the story then moves to a mysterious, kind of vaguely sleazy landlord, although it's obviously something that the show doesn't uh, ultimately play with too much. We see the Asian mom speaking perfect English. And to the show's uh, credit, there's no real hint as to the fact that we're, uh, we're in the past. This is the past. This is a flashback. Uh, that is until she calls her son Miles. At this point, it's very quickly, uh, very, very engrossing. It's an example, again, as will appear uh, in this episode and has appeared for a number of these season five episodes, we are ahead of the show. Young Miles starts to get these little wisps of awareness, something that uh, we, of course, as I said, we're ahead of it. We can pin it to his ghost-busting, ghost-finding, ghost-whispering powers. He finds a recently deceased tenant. He uh, cries out in kind of vaguely poor acting, though I won't pile on too much on the kid actor. Uh, but he cries out that he hears the dead. With that, we, uh, you know, the flashback concludes, and uh, Miles is reading while on security monitor duty. It's a post, uh, you know, we're, we're at a post uh, Ben drop off time period. And, uh, and Sawyer needs the tapes erased. That's specifically Sawyer and Kate and uh, sickly Ben cross the line. And it kind of seems slightly out of character, I'll add, that Miles fights Sawyer on this fact for a bit, asking for more information, the whys, the wheres, the whos, that kind of thing. Now, granted, the friends of Lafleur, the, you know, the, the bunch that arrived with uh, with. Uh, the supposed James LaFleur, um, they have become darned comfy in Dharma, but it still does seem kind of slightly manufactured for the purposes of tonight's entry, doubly so given that uh, <laughs> the fact that he belly aches about uh, erasing that tape leads to the fact that there is, wait for it, an unerased tape in the fourth act. We'll talk more about that when we get there, but in retrospect, it's not just seeming slightly manufactured. I mean, of course, we're kind of in this you know manufactured fiction, right? But it is manufactured specifically so that he reasonably does not uh, erase the tape so that there's a tape later on. Um, shame on you. Lost shame on you. Anyhow, Miles does start that tape erasure process, I think sticking it in the erasing section or something, but... He's almost caught by Horace, who drafts him for a secrety, secret circle of trust duty to take a mysterious small package to Radzinski in grid 334, a grid that Miles notes they shouldn't be in. Now, I suppose making up for the, uh, the uh, business over the tape not being erased, what unfolds is a really, really nice bit of writing. Small package is, when unfurled, a body bag. Uh, the package for the return trip is a dirty, dusty body of a mysteriously dead guy. 
We, of course, uh, as first-time viewers, to wear that hat as we do sometimes, we can likely fill it in. Uh, we've seen digging in the future hatch site, uh, something that we had a, had a, a glimmer of uh, at the top of the season. And uh, we know that uh, Radzinski's eye is on the future swan. So definitely kind of the indication that this may start to come together in this direction. Um, of course, it'll be confirmed uh, more, uh, more directly later in the episode. However, the show, as always, has the dramatic initiative to let the whole audience know about things. Not just the smarty pants among us or let the repeat viewers uh, understand the big picture. Miles unzips the body bag, asks the corpse what really happened, and we cut to the title card because that's a mystery that we're not meant to uh, quite have access to uh, yet. After that, there's a very, very convincing uh, entry from the, uh, the, the hair and makeup people. We see young teen punk Miles, who of course is nonetheless played by Ken Leong, and uh, his presentation is complete with spiky hair, piercings black fingernails and angry angst perhaps the product of an absent dad anyone uh the formerly vibrant mom who i think you know she just had the one scene at the top of the episode to really sell her as um you know at the prime of her life um i mean what it must be like for an actress to be told this is your one scene to sell yourself as not dying because here she is clearly dying uh, likely of cancer, if her thinning hair is any indication. At any rate, it's an effective presentation, one in which mom, rather unsurprisingly, but again, very effectively, spells out tonight's central story. Dad abandoned them, dad is dead, and son wants answers. That's S-O-N. Speaking of dads and sons, Miles returns uh, back in the 1977 storyline to the security office in which he's told to take the body to Dr. Chang. Miles' reaction is enough to tell us that we're on the right track, just in case you were concerned that pairing the only Asian of fatherly age with the only Asian of adult son age is uh, pushing it on your part. Nope, this is clearly courtesy of the actor, some some foreshadowing uh, that the... Uh, or confirmation, if not foreshadowing, that the uh, the character has put two and two together, that this uh, could be dad, or as we'll learn later, is in fact, uh, both to our knowledge and to the knowledge of Miles, dad. Anyhow, with all the dead dad and dying mom and corpse business, the show wisely lightens things up. Where are you going to go for that bit of light? Well, it's Hurley. Hurley is going to the Orchid with lunch, and Miles is going there, so gee whiz, says Hurley, let's carpool and prevent global warming. It's not their first pairing, of course, but with Miles as the straight man and Hurley as the funny man, it's, it's a great pairing, one that's going to have some, uh, you know, some fantastic results in this episode. So with that, off they go, and off the story moves to Kate briefly meeting up with Juliet post-heist, only to be interrupted by Roger, who apparently has the dramatic function uh, to create tension pressure by discovering the presumed abduction of boy Ben and telling everyone uh, that he's going to tell everyone. The act ends with Juliet saying, well, here we go. 
After the act break, Hurley is working on a mysterious little something involving a bounty hunter. Soon enough, it'll be revealed as uh, the source of the episode's title. But the scene quickly moves to an almost but not quite discussion of, wait for it, on this show that ponders life and death, who passed the gas? With, again, again, the audience is ahead of things. Uh, We know that it was neither Hurley nor Miles, but rather the dead man in the back of uh, of their van. With that, Miles is conjoled into pulling over, and the scene turns to tension as Hurley roots around in the back and finds the body bag with, unsurprisingly, its usual contents. Now, this really could be a simple kind of color-by-numbers scene of Hurley freaking out amusingly, uh, the goofy Giacchino music playing, but they don't go there. That isn't the purpose of this scene, as things turn out. It's actually the other end of the teaser act to find out what really happened to the corpse. His name's Alvarez. He was digging a hole and thinking about some chick named Andrea. Then he felt a sharp pain in his mouth, which turned out to be a filling from his tooth being yanked right out of its socket and blowing through his brain. Then he was dead. How does a feeling get blown through someone's head? Got me. Can we go now? How do you know all this? Because I know. So again, this isn't just an opportunity to have Hurley be funny. There's a purpose to the scene. It's to make it clear beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're talking about the swan, the same swan that housed a magnetic pole that tugged at Saeed's fillings, that raised the key around Jack's neck, that pulled chairs and washers and dryers when the magnetism was released. The purpose of the scene is to make us shiver with the hope that maybe, just maybe, will go back there this season, sometime in the next six episodes. It is, in short, a declaration of a roadmap of sorts. With that, we get a flashback to the future, as Miles, the ghost whisperer, uh, is talking with a grieving father and getting him to pony up more dough just to hear if uh, the dead son loved Dad or was loved by Dad. The son has been cremated, we're told, and his ashes scattered on the football field. The, the scene, the presentation, the acting of Miles is tinged with a cool, quiet anger of the character, uh, letting us wonder if he charged the dad more simply for not being the best loving father that he could be. I think that certainly the, uh, the second scene with the dad later in the episode probably confirms that, that Miles is just, uh, he's not angry at this dad, he's angry at, you know, Pierre Chang dad. The scene wraps up with Naomi appearing, uh, two miles ready to recruit him. It's kind of a cute addition. I mean, it's the statement of this is the Miles episode. I think you you could kind of do without it. We're kind of beyond the comprehensive flashback to understand a character's motivations. Um, you want to include Naomi in it? Eh, okay, fine. You want to fill in those pieces? Fine. I mean, he'll he'll ultimately be... Uh, the freighter person who is with us the most. Um, You know, so be it. Anyhow, you know, aside from that sense of the show, you know, pushing the look, crossing paths moment, 
it's nonetheless uh, a straightforward scene. There are awful fathers and awful, uh, pardon me, there are awful fathers and angry sons out there. And that leads us to a quiet and well-acted, a very well-acted scene in which Kate tries to console Roger. Speaking of awful fathers and angry sons, Kate, of course, <laughs> does not console him. She sets off his drunken anger as he rightly starts to sniff out her involvement, then just rages that, that conclusion away, like so very much else in his life. Yet, of course, the episode is trying to balance the, the darkness in this episode with some lightness, and we get that as Hurley and Miles chat back and forth about their ghost-whispering powers, the first time that it's called a power, uh, and of course, Hurley is the one that gives it the label. It's filler, but it's fun. It's enjoyable, breathable filler. It's silly stuff for an otherwise dark episode, and I think it's very much appreciated. It, of course, does not go on for too long, as their conversation is cut short by their arrival at the Orchid, complete with a camera shot across the front of the van that lets us see, for a moment, a boom mic. Anyhow, Papa Chang is all business, including when Hurley lets slip after about five seconds that uh, the latter knows about the body. Chang barks orders. He threatens deportation to Hydra Island, complete with measuring polar bear poo for those ridiculous experiments. And he uh, cajoles uh, ineffective worker Miles, all while the latter does not make eye contact with loving dear old dad. It's an excellent, excellent acting decision to have Miles cower in the face of his own largely unknown father. And just in case we weren't clear as to our theory here, we have proof that this is no long drawn out season two. We get further proof that payoffs come quicker now and further proof that the show is okay with us figuring things out just slightly ahead of the reveal. Dude, that guy's a total douche. That douche is my dad. After the act break, we're in flashback as Miles auditions for Naomi, there being a body in the back of a restaurant. What was the stiff thinking? Oh, it's things that we've already seen. Pictures of empty graves, a purchase order for an old plane, and the involvement of one Mr. Widmore. It's an excellent touch to hearken back to something that we already knew. With that, the standard expected boilerplate offer to go to an island and a huge monetary amount of money, 1.6 million, uh, is made, and uh, the flashback ends, and there's a bristly attempt at a heart-to-heart, -heart with Hurley asking the questions and Miles not wanting to talk about it, though he does yield the line, that he knew his dad was here when, on the third day, his mom got behind him in the cafeteria. With that, the story moves to Janitor Jack cleaning the classrooms. In the background, a sign says, Dharma students make learning fun! And uh, you also, of course, noticed that Jack was wiping uh, the board uh, of its lesson on ancient Egyptians. Hardy har har. Anyhow, with that, his uh, janitorial compatriot Roger comes in, clearly drunk, clearly angry, though he's talking plainly enough as he puts more pieces together and wonders if Kate had some role in all of this. 
but that Jack puts on his big boy pants and calmly but forcefully reminds Roger that he's drunk and angry and should move on from this theory. We see masterful acting out of Matthew Fox, who's both dominant and non-confrontational at the same time. With that, the story moves to the icy, quiet van, where Hurley decides to initiate the father-son conversation that Miles cannot. So I'm new here, Dr. Chang. What does exactly you do with the orchid? It's classified. Oh, really? You can't tell anyone? Not even your wife? No. What about your kids? I have a three-month-old son, so no, I haven't told him. Three months? Wow, congrats. What's his name? Miles. Small world. That's your name too, right, Miles? Yeah. So you a fan of jazz, Dr. Chang? Like Miles Davis? My wife is. I like country. So you two have been here for three years now. Must be pretty tight, huh? Dr. Chang and I don't exactly travel in the same circles. I wasn't aware there were circles. Great. We should all get together for a beer sometime. How awesome would that be? Stop here. It's an amusing scene, a mix of sharing and tension, complete with Hurley's best intentions. The conversation is, of course, interrupted by Chang taking them to an unknown location, hidden quite nicely, uh, at least by way of the camera angle and a leaf-covered fence. Then there it is, the pit construction site. It's a backdrop at first, but then Hurley realizes, I think in a, in a, in a very profound way, that he is trapped. They are all trapped. Tremendously, tremendously so. What's the serial number that goes on the half sleeve? Four, eight. Fifteen. Sixteen. Twenty-three. Hold on a minute, it's smudged. Forty-two. Forty-two. How the hell did you know that? Because they're building our hatch. What hatch? The one that crashed our plane. It is an absolutely monumental scene. It spells out not only the rest of the season, but also in a certain sense, it spells out the rest of the series. Which is to say, for this season or the rest of it, prevent the crash for next season. It helps fool the audience into thinking that preventing the crash worked with the season six flash sideways. On top of that, since it's our happy clown who discovers it, our affable everyman, it only serves to, to heighten the dark mood of the episode. And after the act break, uh, we have a flashback to Miles getting a taco, then accosted, by Bram, who, of course, is familiar from uh, the Ajira flight and some of the subsequent uh, beach time. And Bram has a message which quickly starts to sound familiar. Miles, my name's Bram. You owe me a fish taco. Sorry about that, but your apartment's being watched. And we had to try our best to talk you out of working for Charles Widmore. 
I've no idea who that is. <laughs> He's the man who chartered the boat you'll be getting on next week. And my friend, you do not want to get on that boat. Do you know what lies in the shadow of the statue? No. Can't say that I do. Then you're not ready to go to that island. But if you come with us, all those things you've spent your life trying to find out, you'll know. You'll know who you are, Miles. Why it is you have a gift. And most of all, you'll know about your father. I don't know where you've been getting your intel, but I stopped caring about my father a long time ago. What I do care about is money. So I'll tell you what, you want me to pass on going to the island, it's gonna cost you double what they offered, 3.2 million. We're not paying you anything. All the money in the world isn't gonna fill that empty hole inside you, Miles. The strength of the scene is that it hits the central refrain of Miles. Like all our heroes, he's struggling to do the right thing. And though light is made of the hole in his heart, we know that it's there, and he does too. It's the big explanation for his quirky, chip-on-his-shoulder attitude. And, and, there's the refrain of what lies in the shadow of the statue, another yet unresolved mystery for first-time viewers. And also just a, a, a fairly clear reminder that, um, well, you know what? Not even a reminder. I mean, it's a reminder for the repeat viewing. But I think that in terms of the, the dramatic function of the scene, we don't know what Alana's deal is. We don't know what side she's on. But Alana appears to be on the same side as Bram. Bram appears to be anti-Widmore. Uh, so therefore, does that not suggest that they're the good guys? Well, we know that the answer, of course, will be yes. Anyhow, we head back to the island van with Hurley recapping the central oddness of the hatch. And then he keeps asking about dad, about what it's like to finally meet him. Let's not forget, of course, or Hurley doesn't, uh, that he too didn't know his father. And that that is the underlying unspoken thrust for his concerns. Something that gets revealed and repeated later in the episode. With that, the grand, wonderful reveal comes to us. Hurley is writing The Empire Strikes Back with the intention of selling it to George Lucas. It's laughable for us at home, though Miles declares it ridiculous as well, so I think we feel better about that. But Hurley gets the last word. He says it's nothing compared to not talking to your own father. As we'll talk about in a bit, it also is a wonderful, it's a setup, it's a jokey setup to a dramatic uh, a dramatic conclusion later on as Hurley uses that film to uh, to hammer home some points. Anyhow, with that, the story moves to Sawyer coming home to a powwow with Jack and Juliet as they realize that there is a small Kate problem. As Jack leaves, Sawyer sees him out, and I had to wonder if that was a refrain of when Sawyer saw Jack out a few episodes ago in that kind of gentlemanly, get off my property sort of way. With that, right on cue, Phil arrives, that smarmy, smart Phil, somebody who's shown in the past he's able to go from, uh, from positive to negative so quickly. And why is he here? 
Well, he's just following the rule of Chekhov's gun. Here reworked as, don't unerase a tape in the first act if you're not going to use it in the fourth act. Anyhow, Phil says that he knows Sawyer is involved and is invited in to receive a cold cocking punch. With that, Sawyer tells Juliet to get the rope, and the act ends. We return after the act break in flashback, where uh, Miles is seeing the dead boy's father again. He returns the money and fesses up. Why? Well, it's a confluence uh, in the season one sense of flashback and island story. Miles says, if you needed your son to know you loved him, you should have told him while he was alive. Flashback over. The Miles Hurley van heads back home, and Hurley talks about the important and fixed relationship that he has with his father. With that, the jokey title, the silly Hurley journal, it all comes together. Hurley recounts that in Empire Strikes Back, not talking to Dad led to tremendously awful consequences and near too little resolution of those problems at hand. Get it? Hand? Anyhow, it's a touching moment for the show, as it really lets the the pop culture references be transcended and turn instead into a life lesson. With that, Hurley goes one way and Miles the other. Giacchino plays the scene as Miles happens upon Chang's cottage where he's reading to his son, a polar bear book, no less. Turns out that Chang is a loving, caring, involved father. He's not Darth Vader. And the next bits of dialogue spell out, not just for Miles, but I think for all of us, the hopes in the very, very best of humanity. Miles, I need you. You do? Subs in from HQ. We need your help bringing them in. Sure, new recruits. No, uh, scientists from Ann Arbor. Get your van and let's get to the dock. With that, the scene shifts to the sub, to the dock, to those scientists. And in a sense, Some Like It Hoff is over. And the next episode, the variable has begun since that variable is about to arrive. Dan. Hey, Miles. Long time to see. And with that, we're off to the races. It's not a huge singer. Uh, and again, I'll repeat, this really isn't a resolution of this week. It really honestly is the start of next week. Now, I know many episodes have this sort of thing that propels us to next week, but this is so strongly a Miles episode. This isn't a move the football forward episode where we get a little of this storyline and a little of that storyline. Yes, there's shades of it, but this is a, a, a classic lost episode in terms of its format. Again, I'm not being overly critical of how it ends, although I think it's you know, we reach a point in Lost where I think if it's not some amazing ending, we're a bit jaded. Um, jaded because it's not, you know, he wasn't on the manifest, because it's not a season finale. Keep us guessing for months and months and months cliffhanger. It's just an, another episode to make us watch next week. Uh, and that's OK. I'm OK with that, uh, particularly in this season as we are 
chugging along at a faithful pace where week after week after week we have these episodes, at least in terms of how they were originally presented. Um, so it's, it's, it's an adequate ending. Now, before, before we move on to uh, the bits and pieces I may have missed, uh, I have some feedback to share from this episode, as teased earlier, some feedback from Tim, who sent an email. And uh, again, him kind of being ahead of the curve in terms of uh, you know, sending his thoughts on an episode yet to be podcasted. Uh, so here are, uh, here are Tim's words on this episode. I don't think this episode was as good as the last one or the rest of the season. In fact, if I had a least favorite episode of season five, I think this would be it. Now, I don't necessarily think that it was a bad episode. I just don't know if the ideas worked. It was nice to see Miles' backstory, and I think Ken Leung carried it well enough. I don't know. The reveal that Pierre Chang was Miles' dad was kind of just on the okay side. Tim goes on to say, I did, however, enjoy the stuff with Hurley and Miles together. It has been said that Miles is basically just another Sawyer. You can definitely see that in the interaction with Hurley and Miles. It definitely felt like a season one Sawyer and Hurley dynamic. Now I will pause Tim's words for a moment to say that I'll disagree with him slightly. Sawyer was mean. Miles is a bit more shut off and um, also, I think, willing to listen. He does listen to the dad stuff. He does follow Hurley's lead, albeit a bit reluctantly. Anyhow, Tim uh, wraps up by saying, I also liked seeing Hurley's little bit with the fact that he was writing Empire Strikes Back. I remember when this episode aired, people had actually gone to Wikipedia and changed the writer of the screenplay to Hugo Reyes instead of who actually wrote it. It was quite funny at the time. Lastly, Tim says, all in all, a good episode. Not the season's best, in my opinion, but it definitely had stuff that will propel us to the 100th episode of Lost and the season finale. So well said, Tim. I certainly agree. I think that it, uh, if nothing else, it's giving us this pace to get to that that magical mark of the 100th episode of Lost and uh, how very far we've come indeed. I think that we're down to, uh, <laughs> we're getting down. We certainly are. Anyhow, with uh, my thoughts now concluded, Tim's contribution now shared, let's take a look at Lostpedia for the bits and pieces I have missed. Uh, first, like whatever happened, happened. The variable and parts of He's Our You, and the finale. The flashbacks in this episode occur after present day action in the show's timeline. Now, this is something we've discussed before current day storyline in 1977, predating the flashbacks that take place in Miles' uh, life in presumably what, the 70s and 80s, perhaps 90s. Um, fun little fact. Thanks for the, uh, for the reminder of Lostpedia. Lostpedia also says if you look at Howard, that's the flashback dad, if you look at his wristwatch when Miles is talking to him, you can see, see that he's wearing the exact same watch as the one Ben wore in the episode The Man uh, Behind the Curtain, where you see him kill his father. So there you go, a reuse of props. Penultimately, Kate opens up her beer on the swing with Roger, and when she does, we can clearly see that the can has one of those new type litter-free ring poles. These certainly weren't invented in 1977. Then there's the note. The producers have jokingly explained this by stating that the ring poles were invented by the Dharma Initiative. Again, you know, I mean, there's times Lostpedia is a little bit too nitpicky. Who cares? It's a TV show. You know, these people actually aren't real. Um, but if you want to be particular about the ring poles, I frankly like the answer that, you know, if they're measuring bear poop, 
uh, hey, why not create a new anti-litter thing to, you know, save the sea creatures, man? I mean, that is why we, <laughs> why we're concerned about, uh, you know, the, uh, the particulars of beer cans, you know, <laughs> aside from their luscious contents. Anyhow, my last comment from Lostpedia, one that will receive a drubbing from me. In the classroom where Roger and Jack run into each other, there's a sign on the wall, one that I noted, dear listeners, that says, Dharma students make learning fun. Then Lostpedia tut tuts and says, just as the, uh, the banner and man behind the curtain, this is incorrect. Dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A, is an acronym and should not be spelled out as a name. Well, has anybody ever heard of Nabisco that makes those lovely cookies? Guess what? That's not quite an acronym, but that's short for National Biscuit Company. Um, you know, I mean, there are there's many a company, many a group that shortens their name and then goes with it. And you know what? That's okay. I mean, I surely don't think that they identify the they the the Dharma people as I'm so proud to be part of the Department of Heuristics. Blah 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 blah. No, they just call themselves Dharma. And uh, and that's okay. Lostpedia is being a bit, bit strict here. So shame on you, Lostpedia. Anyhow, let's look ahead to next week, which uh, has already started almost. Next week's episode is 514, The Variable. Uh, our fantastic Daniel episode, which I think is a bit um, shocking, the conclusion, but also we're kind of, that jaded aspect has continued, but certainly talk about that next week i i welcome as much daniel as possible and of course i'm glad to see his return in season six with that everybody i will, will bid you all a fond farewell and of course talk to you again next week as i said with 514 the variable love to hear more feedback from people at the top of the episode i mentioned twitter i mentioned email i mentioned the web page and of course the listener line love to hear from you all and with that take care everybody and bye bye <laughs>